Thanks for listening to the One Voice podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock Bromley. We're excited to have ultra endurance athlete and child abuse survivor Christian Griffith with us today. Just last week on August 22nd, Christian completed a 3,140 mile run from New York to San Francisco the equivalent of almost 120 marathons in less than 160 days, all to raise awareness of sexual abuse and funding for treatment and prevention. On today's podcast, he shares his story, what he's learned on his intense and unique journey, and what he's still trying to understand. Thank you so much for being willing to chat with us. I know you just finished like the most crazy five months of your life and then got engaged and now you're joining us on this podcast. So (laughs) I am so grateful you said yes and that you said yes so quickly. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I've been admiring your work for a while. This isn't my first exposure to it, but I love what you're doing. I, (laughs) I was extremely excited about talking to you mostly because you're really on the prevention side and Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I have trouble with, but I'm real heavy on the treatment side. So I thought yeah. this could be a really interesting conversation. No, I definitely agree. And I, I had read some of the articles that you had been in, and I loved what you had said about that because though, um, you know, we do a lot as far as the prevention, um, but also in finding your voice and healing, but not as much in, you know, pushing the therapy because we don't have a charity that we're raising money to get, you know, people into the therapy. And that's always been the hardest thing, I think, and in helping people to heal from something like sexual abuse is a lot of times the therapy is so incredibly expensive and they're not in good places to even be able to afford it. So really inspired by what you just did for them. Well, thank you. Thank you. I can't even begin to tell you how amazed I am at what you have just accomplished. I mean, five months you took and you ran over 3,000 miles from New York City to San Francisco to raise awareness of sexual abuse and to raise money for those who need therapy and, and, and counseling. I mean, how did you even decide to do this? I know you've been um, outspoken as a survivor And I would love for you to share your story as much as you feel comfortable doing, but also not any other survivor in the history of the making of the entire universe (laughs) has ever decided to go out and do something like this for survivors. (laughs) I mean, that's just incredible. Well, thanks. And and you can stop me or jump in however you'd like. Uh, I'm pretty... I'm pretty loose with with uh, with the conversation. I, I think it's important um, maybe so, there, there'll be times that I don't always use the best language or may some th- say some things that are disturbing, but I think that that's, uh, it's important in the subject matter that we're talking about. Definitely. You be you, Christian. We, we are down for you just bringing it to the table. Say things however you want to say them, and it'll be fine. Okay, cool. Because I think that that's really important. I, I, I agree. Uh, you know, the vanillaizing of all of this, um, you know, is, you know, I read your survivor as well. And, and I really don't even like the words, like, at least in terms of myself, I don't consider myself a survivor. Mm-hmm. I feel like that sounds weak and non action oriented where I consider myself a warrior. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt about that. I, I want to, to wear the miners cap for folks that have been through what we've been through. And, mm-hmm. um, and especially on the male side, um, I feel like there's a, there's a hole there. And, but ultimately kind of where this all started for me, 
Around the age of 14, by the time that I was going through puberty, I was a bit of a late bloomer. My mom, who's a very, very sick person, um, alcoholic and drug addict, would keep these books, uh, very disturbing content. Um, but I guess back then, back in the in the mid '80s, you could buy these books. They were all prose, right? They were all just books. They didn't have any pictures. And she had these books, about five of them, that were a series of short stories uh, all around really disturbing concepts, whether it be bestiality, incest, rape, gang rape, and you know, and then of course taboo subjects, uh, whether or not you you know you agree they're taboo or not at the time were just fringe stuff, right? Different mm-hmm. things around homosexuality and interracial sex and all these things that, you know, are, while, you know, we all accept and they're perfectly normal, the ways that they were presented weren't normal. And this all is going on as I am going through puberty. So my exposure to sexuality was these books, these fringe subjects, these, these taboo things. And it set the foundation for a very difficult puberty and a very difficult, really childhood and into to young adulthood. These books then uh, were really just my mom's way of sort of weaning me into a direction that she wanted me to go in. Right. Um, that turned into um, my mom, my mom would have a lot of sex with random men. She was a single mom. She'd have a lot of sex with random men. She was very loud mm-hmm. during her sex. And I think that that was a strategy of hers. I can remember times of, you know, her being loud and, and, and having sex with men in the living room. And I would get up and walk into the living room and there she'd be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I can just picture visuals in my head of like her looking over kind of, from the bottom of under some man looking over his shoulder, making eye contact with me and mm. grinning. Oh, wow. um, I can remember times of her being carried in, uh, passed out, put to bed. And uh, oh, really just like clockwork, she would yell my name. I would come into her room from my room and she would ask for various things, uh, ask to be helped, uh, helped, right? Mm-hmm. Like help getting undressed or help getting into a a long t-shirt or a nightgown. And over time, those sort of innocent, you know, can you help me? I'm too drunk to get out of my clothes. Turns into a naked woman, turns into touching, turns into I'm 14 years old, having complete intercourse with my own mom. That that really was hard because it left a lot of damage Mm -hmm. for the years to come. And me wondering if I was responsible because I was an active participant, because I was even a willing participant at the time. Uh, was I dirty, broken, mm-hmm. you know, something wrong with me, you know, right. all of these various things mm-hmm. that I constantly questioned mm-hmm. because of these these acts. Right. Right. Yeah. That kind of trauma would leave you as a child believing so many lies about who you are and, you know, just the world and all kinds of things that you don't even know how to think about because no one's ever taught you. All you know is your experience. Exactly. And, you know, when you're when that is your frame of reference for sexuality at all, mm-hmm. obviously, you can imagine with that being a foundation, my springboard to 
life with women to, to in general yeah. was just completely messed up. So then I had to, once I started having, you know, sexual relations myself, I had to relearn what intimacy meant. Sure, of course. And there wasn't any, I, did, I didn't have anyone to ask. You can go, hey, excuse me, friend, like, <gasps> can you teach me about intimacy? No, I mean, no, right? Like, I didn't have that. I had yeah. to learn the hard way right. through School of Hard Knocks. And I didn't have anyone on the, on the upfront ever giving me mm. information about the right way to do that. I was steered incorrectly from the get-go. Which makes so much sense now that you've gone and found the help, the healthy help, the professional help that you need. And it was so good for you because you finally found, you know, the right answers and the right way. And it, that explains a lot of why you care so much for other survivors to find the same thing. Because we're all out here trying to figure out life. We've got all this pain that's coming out in all these weird ways. We don't know what to do with it until we can finally get into that safe environment, get some help, you know, process it and and, and be the person that we were meant to be before all the abuse. No, you're absolutely right. And it, I swear, when I think back of all this, you know, EMDR therapy, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but yeah. EMDR therapy that I went through was uh, just a godsend for me because yeah. I, I call it therapy Tetris in that. Everything that I was confused about, all these various like circumstances and situations I had gone through and all these various things that I had conveniently compartmentalized so they didn't allow them to hurt me on an everyday basis, they all kind of fell into place along this timeline that finally made sense. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's like the Tetris, like they just dropped in in the perfect way that in, in all these aha moments, right? Mm -hmm. Because... Sure, you know, I had this, this crazy introduction to sexuality. And then by the, just about the time that I relearn sexuality, and oh, by the way, now that I'm actively having sexual relations, my mom is no longer attracted to me in that way because I'm now no longer prepubescent. So while that abuse stopped, very, very sick, and it gets even more sick. But imagine. now that that abuse has stopped with my mom in that way, like one-on-one, -on -one, it just took on a new form. Now she was really interested in me having a lot of sex and having it at our house wow. with the sort of explanation being, you know, just like the parent that says it's okay for the kid to drink if they're at home. Mm -hmm. That was kind of her rationale, That's right? It goes yeah. really, really deep yeah. and really, really sick. What she was doing was just weaning a manipulative yeah. womanizer. Wow. She was weaning one. She was building one. And she was successful. Mm -hmm. And it didn't help that through this whole process of abuse. One thing else that I also learned in therapy is that abusers are get very good at recognizing victims of abuse that they can then turn around and abuse, Right. Like they're good at recognizing the signs yeah, they're very good of someone who mm -hmm. has suffered significant abuse. So, right, and so an, an abuse survivor oftentimes will then be abused again later because they're vulnerable to that and they feel like, oh, I must have had this like bright sign on my face that says, you know, all these things like, you know, I should be a victim. But in essence, it's it's on the abuser like everything else. It's their fault. They also are just really good at, at almost sniffing that out. It's not about the victim. It's about the perpetrator. You're absolutely right. And I believe that that's why I was then raped by two 
different men in my, in my teens. And, you know, for me, you know, it was first I overcome this thing with my mom, which I don't even understand yet is a really super creepy thing. I know it's not right. I know I'm not going to talk to my friends about it, but I, I, I don't understand it enough to know just how dark and disturbing it is. When the men did what they did to me, I knew instantly because they weren't in my family and they were strangers. And, you know, I had talked about it amongst my peers, you know, Oh, if some man ever tried to do anything to me, I'd punch him in the mouth. Right. 14 year old bravado. And in reality, when, you know, a man took my towel off of me in a steam room in a condominium where I was living with my family and I had an orgasm, right. Like from his doing what he was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, Now I'm left with, a horrendous amount of confusion. You know, now I'm in my own head. I've, mm-hmm. I've had sex with my mother. I've had two men who have had sex with me. Mm-hmm. Am I gay? Am I not gay? Mm-hmm. I don't feel gay. Why did I mm-hmm. have an orgasm with a man? What the hell is going on? Like mm-hmm. my entire ideas around sexuality and all of that was just in chaos, right. in total chaos. Right. And you know, it, it, it kind of, and I know I might be jumping around, but you said I can. So, but like you look at these, you look at these, these, uh, the, the pre stuff that's just come out lately. And, you know, the, that's, yeah. a, you know, that's a huge story. And what I kind of been, been getting out of the story or been able to take away from the story. Number one, there's a lot of men talking, which is good because yes. it, traditionally we haven't, we haven't had a lot of men come out and say these things, right? Like we don't want to admit this. This is, testosterone, ego, whatever you want to call it, but we don't want to admit these things have happened to us. And Mm -hmm. so it's nice to see some of them doing that. But, but some of the narrative that I've seen coming out is, you know, some people said, Oh, well, this happened in a lot of these cases, this happened in the early nineties, you know, so it's, it's been a while for these people. And, you know, so why are they just now talking about it now? Like it's a problem. Mm. The only person that would say that is somebody who hasn't been abused. That's the only person in the world that's going to say something that, Mm-hmm. idiotic and naive because mm-hmm. you know like i know mm-hmm. and anyone else who has been sexually abused as a child it doesn't it doesn't go away now it doesn't matter if it's if it's if it's one year no. or 25 years exactly you might have gotten really good at compartmentalization mm-hmm. but it hasn't gone away no and it plays out in a, in a number of your behaviors and coping mechanisms and everything that you do mostly behind closed doors. Right. And it takes a lot of time. Sometimes it takes someone hitting rock bottom before they're able to finally say it. And that could take 30, 40 years. I mean, you know, I've spoken in in places where 80-year-old women will tell their story for the first time. And it happened when they were little girls. We can't put a timeline on healing. And especially back then, the old school they, this is like, you just don't talk about this, right? Like it, That is so true. Don't, right. They'll be crazy almost with it. Right. We just right. don't talk about that. Boom, yeah. done. Well, and I had heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, but I had heard that a lot of what had sort of given you that extra amount of courage to go for being so outspoken about your own story and, you know, being People Magazine and doing these films and different things and being known as a, as a male survivor or warrior of sexual abuse is the whole Me Too movement. So all of these other women that were coming forward, in fact, helped you to find your own courage, correct? They did. It, um, but, but in, a, 
in a really challenging way, but yes, absolutely. So mm. I remember, you know, as I was going through therapy, really had just started my therapy, the, uh, the wine scene stuff was just kind of coming out mm. and, uh, the, you know, the Bill Cosby stuff had been, you know, waffling hot and cold, hot and cold for a while, but mm. it was out there, the Weinstein stuff, but, you know, it wasn't until I saw Allie, the the final gymnastics girl oh, yeah. that gave her testimony directly mm-hmm. to Larry Nasser. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason they chose her last, right? Yeah. Like she's already an attorney. So and, powerful, right? But she chewed him up. I don't know if you guys saw it. Yeah. But I watched a lot of those, like um, uh, those those women getting the opportunity to speak directly to Nasser. And I mean, it's like watching a football game. I'm like down the edge of my, my couch just going, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, like just give it to him, man, right yeah. on. Yeah. And and one of the greatest things she ever said was, you know, that one thing you abusers tend to forget about is that little kids grow up. <laughs> and yep. and that was huge that to was. me. And and I remember because during the whole time I'm planning this run, and I'm like, the universe is literally unfolding for me right now in terms of people being willing to hear this narrative because I had believed for so long that. Because that's what we do. We isolate when we're hiding something. So I believed for so long that that just my situation was so different or mine was so unique or mm-hmm. mine was just so dirt dark and dirty and I'd done so many things wrong. It just that I that it's just me, like I'm by myself in this. And it wasn't until first being driven by the Me Too movement, you know, doing some other things with Help for Children where I learned more things like statistics and things around various countries and how much of a problem this is mm-hmm. that I realized, Oh my God, there's like an, there's an army, like a full on army of us out there. But unlike something like cancer or MS or any of these quote unquote victimless crime, I'm a victimless um, diseases or predicaments or, you know, whatever you want to call them. Nobody's talking about it. You know, if your uncle gets cancer, you might create a GoFundMe and, get on Facebook and say, man, my uncle's got cancer, you know, help me get him some treatment or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, even a dog, right? Like a dog needs surgery. You might go and go fund me and get people to help you fix the dog. But nobody's going on there and saying, Hey, you know, I was sexually abused for 20 years and uh, I really need to get therapy." Like people just, you know, nobody, nobody wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I felt like especially men, especially men. And that's when I felt like I had to do something. Well, and I've been saying for years, you know, we just need more men to find that courage to speak out and to share their stories because they're, you know, as hard as it is for women to do so, I think it's 10 times as hard for guys. And we, I've just always longed to see more and more guys to be able to find their voices and to not be ashamed because it's not your shame to carry. And, um, because I know that once one person steps out and says, this happened to me, you know, it, it gives other people permission to say me too. And that's what you're doing for other guys. And I'm really proud of you for that, Christian. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about EMDR. Um, I know that I personally have gone through that in my own therapy and I felt like it was really good and helpful for me. I think it's scary for people who don't understand what it is, but, um, you said that it's been instrumental in your own therapy. So I wonder if you could share a little bit with the survivors who are listening to our podcast and maybe are considering it themselves. 
I look at EMDR therapy as um, a good analogy is peeling away the onion. What, what we do as victims of sexual abuse, um, what we tend to do um, psychologically is we fixate. And we fixate on, like for me, I would think about my abuse. First thing I thought about when I woke up in the morning, last thing I thought about at night and would have triggers throughout the day, right? Like things that would remind me of it or remind me of what a weirdo I am because of it. And, um, or what a weirdo I felt like I was, I should say, obviously we're not weirdos, but you know, just my own feelings about myself. And I was really fixated on just the sexual abuse. Like how can my mom do this to me? Like, mm, like what yeah. can I, I've won the lottery or something. Like there's a million things that are like crazy odds. Mm-hmm. Why are my crazy odds happen to be my own mom wanted to sleep with me? Right. Like, like, like why? Yeah. And I fixated <laughs> on that so much right. that I tended to forget about a lot of the other things that were contributors to my dysfunction in life. Mm. All, all, all related but the body can only, or the mind, I feel like I've learned, can only handle so much trauma at once. And it sort of fixates on that trauma. And you have to compartmentalize the rest. I mean, you can't, you just can't handle everything all at once, right? And exactly. what I learned in EMDR was some of the other things. Like, for instance, I had almost totally, not forgotten about, like, if you were to ask me about it, I'd be able to tell you, boom, right away, mm-hmm. that yes, my mom was an alcoholic and drug addict. Yes, I spent a lot of my high school years, walking down to the beach and picking up two drunk people that call themselves my parents off the sand. And yes, you know, neighbors would come over and knock on the door, Christian, you know, we, we hate to tell you this, but your parents are passed out on the beach and they, they look really sunburnt and, you know, you should probably go get them, you know, shit like that. Like I've forgotten about all that. Mm-hmm. I haven't forgotten about it, but it didn't consume me every day like the sexual abuse did. But it played a huge part in my life. It played a huge part into why I couldn't stand my family. It played a huge part into all of my behaviors, right? In other words, what has happened to us affects us, and it's displayed through our behaviors. Uh So what EMDR did for me was it exposed all of those things. And I think that's why people, you know, in in some ways say about EMDR can be very painful, can be very difficult. And it is, right? Because it doesn't just take the one negative thing that you think you're telling your therapist you need to work on. It brings it all to light mm-hmm. as sort of a big picture. Right. Right. Which both is hurtful, but it's also helpful because it's better than not knowing. Right. Bad news never gets better with time. <laughs> yeah. <right>? Like <laughs> it's, it, it, and, and at least it's, it's good to know. And then once I knew what was driving a lot of these behaviors and this dysfunction in my life, I could then actively decide that I want to start working on these behaviors. Mm. And that's what it did for me. So sort of coming out as a, as a, you know, using the victim terminology, coming out as a victim or coming out as someone who has uh, suffered sexual abuse as a child, that was the first step, right? Finding somebody who was a catalyst for change for me, someone who sparked me sparked interest in me and wanting to start to talk about what had happened to me because I was inspired by them. That was the first step, but it wasn't enough. You know, this, the, the follow-up to that is that you have to do the work Mm -hmm. and that's what I'm doing now. Right. That's what run to heal is. That's what uh, me, when I do my speaking engagements, Mm -hmm. um, 
talking to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this is me doing the work. That's this is right. me mm-hmm. putting it out there and being a uh, an, an advocate, if you will, for admission and healing. That's because right. I'm sick of being miserable. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. And you get to the place where you've got to make some decisions for yourself. And I think I'm really proud of you for going to the therapy and then also seeing how helpful it was for those who are listening, who don't know what EMDR is. It's um, it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So it's a, it's a form of therapy um, that's designed to basically diminish negative feelings associated with memories of traumatic events in your life. So um, for me, it was just entering into some of those painful pieces of my memories of my abuse that kept coming up later in life. You know, my abuse ended when I was 14. That was 24 years ago, but there's still things that pop up now. And so EMDR was a form of therapy that helped me to look at it in a new way. And it was able um, through my counseling to, to heal some of those places that were still really painful. And so just a little bit of background there for people who don't really know. I'm wondering, Christian, when did you start therapy? How old were you? I mean, this year you went through different forms of sexual abuse and rape. So at what point were you like, okay, I'm going to go get some help after, you know, a series of a lot of what sounds like unhealth in your early adulthood? Uh, you, you know, it's a single individual catalyst is really difficult. I feel like it all kind of unfolded. But I, uh, I would have to say that at the age of 44, I wasn't healthy as an individual, and my wife wasn't healthy. And I don't believe that two unhealthy people can have a healthy relationship. felt really bad during my divorce. I felt really bad for having an affair. It, it, I just wasn't clear on why I was feeling really bad about it all. But if you look at my behaviors and what I was doing, it all kind of makes sense. Like as soon as I got divorced, I moved to Nicaragua and I lived in a tree house in Nicaragua. And, what? you know, I was co- sort of having this wow, almost like a midlife crisis, yeah. right? Like I was like all this, this pattern of, of, of destructive behavior, you know, it's, it's, it's an obvious pattern. I really want to get my arms around it. I don't know what that looks like. And so I ran away from life, I like see. a tree house in Nicaragua yeah, no, I get it. So it was at that point, it was like a crisis and you were at a turning point. Everything was kind of changing and you're like, now is the time. So mid 40s. And then I went and did a, uh, a race in uh, Australia, but I met a man named Damien Ryder who has an organization called PACA, which is Paddle Against Child Abuse. And it inspired me. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy, this big, tall, strapping, covered in tattoos, big, you know, athlete you know, bigger than life guy is talking about his abuse. Like he's saying it, the sun is shining, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, I just remember being so floored by that. And so I engaged him a lot, but I would never tell him anything about me. I just would engage him and let him talk. And then finally, when I left Australia, I texted him my entire story for the first time in my life. I'm falling on a plane, texting my entire story to him in a Facebook message, which I think he still has. Wow. And, um, and all he did was write back one line said, wow, mate, comma, what now? Question mark. <laughs> and I remember 
I say that a lot because that was that what now yeah was like this huge aha moment for me like yeah what now you know what now yeah like, I've I've admitted it to one person I feel better maybe if I admit it to more people I'll feel even better I got back to Nicaragua February of 2016 I wrote damn right I was sexually abused wow. it's still on my blog at live for a living it's one of my most popular blogs and uh, it's where I announced to the whole world that I had been sexually abused. It was funny because I was living in Nicaragua at the time, so I felt very far away from everything and everyone I knew. So when I hit, you know, send on the post on Facebook to let people read it, I felt so good. I remember sitting back in the chair and going, oh, I feel great. And then like three seconds later, oh, shit, what did I just do? <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> right? I just told everyone in the world that, men had had sex with me, right? The one thing mm -hmm. that I spent an entire lifetime, teenage years, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, all just tearing through as many women and relationships as I possibly could, purely for the fact that everyone would think that I was a super stud and no one would ever guess in a million years that men had had sex with me. And now I've just told everyone. And that's when I tell you that, you know, that was the admission phase. And over time, I was still kind of great. You admitted it. You, you've told people why you're kind of a jacked up dude. Mm. And a lot of my friends, even would reach out to me like, oh, my God, dude, this answers so many questions, blah, blah, blah. Like people would say to me, but the behaviors are still there. So, okay, great. I, I had this admission, but, but guess who still like, got three or four girls going on at one time and is lying to each one of them about, where he is and what he's doing and who he's with and how deep the relationship is because he's still playing this game. I'm still playing this game mm -hmm. that I have now has become my identity. Even if I wanted to get away from it, I couldn't because it had become my identity, you know, like being a stud, which sounds so lame to come out of my mouth right now. But at the time was, was how I identified myself. Right. You know, and people might say, well, yeah, but women didn't like you. I didn't care. What I learned in therapy is I didn't like women. Well, yeah, like, it was a way of numbing your pain. Well, that and I was angry at women because the one woman mm. in my life who was supposed to be the introducer to intimacy and love and yeah. all these various things that you expect to get from a mom, not only didn't get those, but I got the opposite right. in really sick and twisted and demented way. Definitely. So I was pissed. Exactly. You know, I was pissed. And I was taking that out on, on other women. Well, it brings me to one quote that really stuck out to me that I read about you recently um, in the People Magazine article. And you said, therapy was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It totally changed my life. And it taught me that for me to heal, I needed to be a voice for the little boy inside of some of us grown men. And I thought... That just broke my heart for you, Christian, because as I hear you share your story, there's so much pain and so much twisted, you know, development. And, you know, healing is a lifelong journey. And for you, you've gone through a lot of therapy and it's been so helpful, but it's an ongoing thing for you. There's still a lot of pain there. There's still a lot of questions. But the biggest thing that I pull from this is there's a little boy inside of you, Christian, that needs his voice. And you've been such a rock star in just being really courageous 
in doing this big run across the U.S. the last five months and raising money. Um, but it's still there. It's that little boy's voice is still there, still needing to hear it wasn't your fault and it shouldn't have happened that way. The need for therapy is, is always present. And I think you've even said that you'll be in therapy the rest of your life, which I think is really powerful. I will. And it's not because I believe that, you know, it's I've been through such trauma that someone like me must be in therapy for the rest of their life. I think that everyone should be in therapy. Yeah. And um, the analogy I like to use is that if I go to the CrossFit gym and I go and I do some awesome heavy workout and I crush that workout, oh, people will be in the parking lot. They'll be high-fiving me. They'll be using words like, oh, beast, and oh, you killed that. Oh, you crushed that, Christian. And then I say, yeah, cool. Now I'm headed to go um, see my therapist. <laughs> right. You kind of get this side eye, right? It's like, oh, what's wrong with you? What do you mean you're going to see your therapist? Like, wait a minute. So it's perfectly studly and awesome and cool, and I'm awesome to you when I'm crushing it physically. But if I want to be crushing it mentally, that's a problem. Yeah, good for you. It's all about wholeness, right? It can't just be the physical aspect. The mental, emotional, spiritual. It's Absolutely. So, yeah, it's been a uh, interesting, that has been an interesting kind of sidebar is, is that stigma around therapy. Well, you're doing so much for survivors as far as saying that this is important. You know, when it comes, we talked a little bit earlier about you know, our goal at One Voice especially is prevention. We want to stop abuse for the next generation by giving this generation their voices back, starting the healing process now so it's not an issue for our children and our children's ch children, and we're going to stop abuse um, for them. But you're saying therapy is so important, and you're actually raising money through this cross-country run that you did um, for people to be able to afford therapy. And I love that. And I want to support that. And in fact, I will be donating to your organization um, after this podcast is done. But I want to talk a little bit, Christian, about your run. I mean, you went from New York City okay. to San Francisco in five months. You ran like, wasn't it like 30 miles a day, five times a week or something crazy like that? Um, yep. 30 miles a day. It was actually 32 to 36 miles a day. Wow depending on, you know, where my start and stop point was mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for that day. And, you know, there were various factors throughout the run that made it so I just started eliminating rest days and was many times going seven days a week. That just seems humanly impossible, but here you are <laughs> and you did it. Um, but I'm thinking about how running, I mean, I absolutely hate running because it's quiet I can hear my footsteps. I can hear my heartbeat, you know, but at the same time, there's a lot of mindfulness that goes into that. You know, there's so much sensory things you're in touch with and you can do a lot of thinking. And so Christian, knowing all these things in your life that have tormented you and, um, you know, you're bringing that to the table. Was it empowering to be one with yourself and have all that time to think and know that you're, bringing good out of some horrible evil that had happened in your life? Or was it hard? Was it one of those times where there was too much thinking going on? Can you sort of bring us, you know, into your own mind as you're running all of those miles? Yes. So I had two goals with Run to Heal, two overarching goals. The primary goal was other people. I learned that focusing on other people and having an actual purpose in my life for the first time in 40 some years mm. 
meaning in ever, <laughs> yeah. was, is, is pretty cool, right? Yeah. So focusing on other people and, their, and, and my ability to inspire and motivate them was my number one goal. It was my number one goal mm. was to inspire and motivate other victims as well as other people who I consider to be victims as well, even if it didn't necessarily happen to them. But if they were in that family and they experienced the behaviors mm. by the victim, then mm. they're victims as well. Almost like Al-Anon for alcoholics, right? Like there are right. residual effects. So I wanted to be inspirational, motivational, but second, secondarily, I was kind of hoping for a little bit of, of, of additional healing for me. Okay. And most specifically, finding forgiveness. Mm. The one thing that I've been unable to do in two years of therapy yeah. is I have been unable to forgive. Yeah. I've been unable to forgive myself, and I've been able, unable to forgive my abusers. Sure. I've been given all of the knowledge. I get it, right? I totally get it. Mm. I've been told a <laughs> 100,000 times. Yeah. If yeah. you can forgive them... It will free you. They will no longer own you, and you will feel better. I get it. I understand the formula. <laughs> tell me again. I totally get it. Yes. But, but just like I can't believe in another form of religion, I can't believe, I can't say I forgive when I don't feel it in my heart. Like, right. I feel like forgiveness is a feeling. It's not an mm. expression. It's not... I forgive you. Oh, but do you really? Like, do you feel it or are you just saying that? <laughs> it's kind of like people say, we'll pray for you. Yeah. I, I don't think you're really doing that. Yeah. Really. I, I, I don't think you are. Mm. I don't think you're praying for me at night. Um, <clears throat> it's the same thing. It's like <laughs> I have yes. trouble with with the forgiveness thing, and, and, I, and I don't know how to feel it, and I'm still angry. So, you know, that I was able to inspire and motivate a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, I had some people come to me. You know, I have a hard time with self-love, and I had a woman come up to me when we were, we put on a public 5K when I had run into Chicago, and I had a woman come up to me who had heard me speak the day before, and she ran through the finish line, and she said, you're my hero. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at Adam, my driver, who was taking photos of people crossing the finish line, I said, dude, man, that, that lady just said I was her hero. I said, man, I don't deserve that, dude. Aww. And he tapped me on the chest, and he said, bro love yourself for a minute, man. You totally deserve it. Look yeah, what you're doing. Right. And you know, it was those kind of things made me feel really good. Made me feel very accomplished. Mm -hmm. I feel like a little bit of a failure in that I wasn't able to get there for myself, mm -hmm. you know, and I tried, I spent those hours that you're talking about running through the desert. I just couldn't get there. Mm -hmm. I tried and tried and thought about it and cried about it you know, everything I could possibly go through to try to get there. And I just couldn't. I'd get back in the RV and go, damn it. I still don't know what forgiveness is. Well, I think you should hear one thing, Christian, in that this healing is lifelong and none of us get to a real finish line in this life with healing. I mean, it's something that should never have happened to us. And it distorts everything, as you know. I think we're always to strive, you know, it's right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, one foot in front of the other. And you're doing that and you should feel really good about that. You have accomplished more than any other survivor of sexual abuse when it comes to, you know, deciding to do a huge endeavor in the way that you did it. And I'm sure you learned a lot about yourself along the way. But that's really hard, too, that, you know, you're going after one specific piece of your healing and you didn't feel like you got there. I will tell you, though. 
you said you've had people telling you you need to forgive for the last two years. I mean, that's such a long process. And for those of us who have actually gotten there, you know, it doesn't it doesn't take other people telling you. It's just like it for me, people could tell me till they were blue in the face that it wasn't my fault what happened to me. But at the same time, that wasn't changing how I felt. I knew it wasn't my fault in my head, but in my heart, I still believed that it was. I had somehow asked for it or deserved it. And the same thing went with forgiveness. You know, like for me, I knew that exactly what you said is true and all these other people telling me, but it it had to be at the time of that was right for me and my journey. Everyone's journey is different and there's no timeline. Absolutely. To, yeah. There's no timeline for forgiveness. And I just, I just want to tell you to take the pressure off yourself, man, <laughs> because it'll come when it's supposed to come. And for me, it's been a choice and it's a choice I've had to make over and over just to free myself. But I would never tell you, you need to do it. And I would never tell you when you need to do it. It's everyone's journey is different and the timelines are all different and you'll get there if it's ever meant to be and you'll know you'll know in your heart. I sure hope so. I do sure hope so. Yeah, and I just would hate for you to look at your run, this amazing accomplishment, as any bit of a failure because you weren't able to get through that one piece of the healing journey. It's just one piece. You know, for those who get there, it's a huge piece, but for you, there's a lot of other things that go before it, I think. And you have to have time to be angry. Anger is a healthy tool when it's used in the right, appropriate way when it comes to healing from something like sexual trauma. And you should be really pissed about what happened to you. And I think running is a good outlet for getting that anger out. And if forgiveness is going to come, it's going to come when it needs to. And it might be when you're making coffee some morning or you're sitting on the toilet. I mean, it (laughs) doesn't mean it has to come on this mountaintop run experience. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Just love yourself, Christian, because you truly, truly are a hero to all of us survivors, and especially to the guys out there who needed a man that was, you know, that's been on this journey to speak up and say, this happened to me, and I'm done hiding. I'm going to use my voice, and that's what you're doing, not only for yourself, but for so many other victims who need it. And now you've raised, uh, what, like $300,000 for survivors of sexual abuse? Yes, we just we pushed over three hundred thousand about two days before I was finishing. That's when I was alerted to it, at least. Wow! Yeah, that's incredible. You should feel really good about yourself. <laughs> well, thank you. I do have one message that I always like to finish any news article with or any podcast with, and that's yeah. just to speak directly to those who have been abused. Awesome. Um, yes. I don't get to talk to a lot of people like you who have you know have have walked this walk as well, mm. but for those out there who have been abused, whether you've been sexually abused as a kid, whether you're being sexually abused now, whether you've been emotionally abused, physically abused, it, it, it doesn't matter. Like abuse is abuse. And mm-hmm. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. I know you've developed coping mechanisms you're not proud of. I know there's dysfunction in your life you're not proud of. I know that there's circumstances going on. You feel like there's no way out. And I'm just here to tell you, find someone that you trust and love and tell them what you're going through. Just do it. Just take the time to tell them. I know you're thinking 
If it's someone in your family that you're going to blow up your family, if it's a close family friend that people aren't going to believe you or all these various things and these fears that you have around talking about it. And I'm just here to tell you that very few of those will come to fruition, if any. And in reality, the people around you will love you. They'll support you. They'll be there for you. And it will get you on the path to healing, which I know seems impossible now, mm. but it's not. It can happen. It's happened for me. It's happened for you, Nicole. Mm. And once that does happen for you and you do start to heal, you can then start to find your voice in ways that you can help other people. But for now, find somebody that you trust and believe in and tell them, just tell them, get started. Yes. So good. So powerful, Ooh. Christian. And if people want to give to help your cause, how could they do that? The website is runtoheal.org, R-U-N, the number two, H-E-A-L.org. And then, of course, all of our social stuff is also run to heal, okay. which I think is really cool because you can kind of see awesome imagery from like when I'm going through snowstorms and mm-hmm. the kind of the spring of the Midwest into the summer of the West and the deserts and <laughs> so all cool. this incredible imagery along the way. So it's cool. You had some great pictures. I was following you on Instagram forever and just loved watching you. I'm like, wish I could do that. <laughs> I look out my window. Not, not today. <laughs> Not today. Well, thank you, guys. We appreciate you. Keep fighting, okay? All right. Will you stay in touch with me uh, after this even? Because I'm very interested in what you do. Excellent. We'll do that. All right. Cool. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked. Even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.